Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Accenture overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe plug-in hybrid is built for the best of both worlds. For the city buzz, for the call of the wild, for finding solitude, for sharing memories, for day trips, and for far-roaming adventures. Because with gas and electric capability, the Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe inspires you to explore more, to explore it all. Tap the banner to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturizer brand. Hello and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Jason Goodger, commissioning editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. A recent study found that nearly 50% of adults in the UK reported feelings of loneliness, at least occasionally. It's a fairly shocking stat, but what effect is loneliness having on our collective health? In this episode, we catch up with Professor Andrea Wigfield, director for the Centre for Loneliness Studies at Sheffield Hallam University. She tells us about the different types of loneliness we can feel, the risks it poses to our mental and physical health, and what we can do to limit its impact. So you're a researcher that studies loneliness. So that's quite an interesting topic of research. Is there a strict scientific definition for what we mean when we say loneliness? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So there have been lots of academic and policy discussion actually as well about the definition of loneliness. And I think over the years, one of the problems has been that people have not really distinguished between social isolation and loneliness. And those two terms have been used interchangeably. But more recently, especially academics have started to really think about what these two terms mean and to try and distinguish between the two so we can arrive at some clear definitions. So what we've come to now in terms of conclusions about these are that social isolation is widely thought to be a lack or an absence of social contacts. So that's more of an objective quantitative count or measure of the number of social contacts a person has. So it might be measured, for example, by how many people you see or speak to in a given week. Whereas when we think about loneliness, that's much more subjective. 
And it's really a more unpleasant feeling that people have and that emerges when someone has fewer social contacts or fewer social relationships than they actually want or desire. So this means that people can be surrounded by others, so they're not really socially isolated, but they can still feel lonely. But at the same time, people can be socially isolated, so they have a low number of social contacts, but they don't necessarily feel lonely. And I think the most frequently cited definition of loneliness, the sort of definition that most people now accept, was put forward by two authors called Daniel Perlman and Letitia Peplow. And it was around 1980, I think, when they put their definition forward. And that still holds today as the best definition of loneliness. So they explain that loneliness is a negative feeling which emerges from a lack or loss of meaningful social relationships. And they say that loneliness can be experienced when there's an imbalance as well between the relationships a person has and the relationships a person desires. But also that loneliness can emerge when people feel that their relationships are poorer when they compare their relationships to their peers. I think that one of the issues currently today is that many young people compare their relationships to other young people by looking on social media. So if a young person sees another young person that appears to have lots of friends on social media or there are lots of photographs of them meeting up with others, it can actually make the the person that feels they have less social relationships even more lonely. But of course, because of the way social media is, we don't actually know what the reality is behind these images. So I think this is one of the contributing factors to why young people today feel more lonely, which we might come on to a bit later. And the last point to mention about the definition of loneliness is there are different types of loneliness that have been defined by academics as well. So the two main different types of loneliness are social loneliness and emotional loneliness. Social loneliness is where there's an absence of a social network of other people. So that might be a network of friends or it could even be work colleagues. Whereas emotional loneliness is where there's an absence of a close emotional attachment. That could be a close friend, but it might be a relative or it could even be and most often is a romantic partner. Uh, So this is obviously a big question, but what do we know about why humans feel lonely? So explanations about why humans feel lonely tend to come mainly from psychologists and neuroscientists. And they often see loneliness from a kind of evolutionary perspective. And there's one key neuroscientist called John Cacioppo, who sees loneliness as a neurological reaction. So a bit like hunger is a signal to humans that they need to eat. He sees loneliness as a signal to people that they need to improve the social situation and to seek out other people that they can connect with. So in the short term, neuroscientists and psychologists don't really see loneliness as a problem, but more of a signal to make a change in their social relationships. This short term loneliness is called transient loneliness. Like I said, transient loneliness is temporary. It might occur due to a life change, for example, and there are a number of different life changes that can happen to cause transient loneliness. In the research that we've carried out at Sheffield Hallam, we call these transient occurrences as life transition points. 
And there are a number of life transition points that individuals can encounter over the life course that can cause transient loneliness. So, for example, it might involve changing schools or when young people move out of home for the first time to university. It might be moving jobs, moving home. People who migrate will feel transient loneliness. Often parents, where their children leave home for the first time, the so-called empty nesters, they might experience transient loneliness. Or it might be when you have a change in employment status, for example, if you become unemployed or retired. Or even carers can experience transient loneliness where they have less time at particular periods to maintain their social connections with other people. Now, although transient loneliness is not pleasant and people don't necessarily enjoy the feeling of of being lonely at that time psychologists don't really see this as a problem they see it as an inherent part of our human nature as social beings and like I said earlier it it leads to a signal to that person to connect with others and to maybe start investing some time or effort into building relationships but the problem occurs when this transient loneliness stays over a longer period of time. And if it isn't resolved, it can lead to chronic loneliness. Now, chronic loneliness is much more worrying and it's much more difficult to escape from. And with chronic loneliness, people can develop negative perceptions of themselves and they can perceive other people's perceptions of them in a negative way as well. And that tends to lead to a downward spiral effect and it makes people's loneliness feel worse. And they're much more less likely then to reach out to connect with other people. And that kind of chronic loneliness is the loneliness that can lead to mental and physical health conditions, which we might talk about a bit later. Because chronic loneliness can lead to this downward spiral effect, this is where it's really important to intervene. So to try and prevent transient loneliness from becoming chronic loneliness. Yeah, so we're talking about social relationships here, in essence. So we all have, you know, several different kinds of relationships. What actually classifies as a strong, nourishing social relationship? So in terms of the kinds of relationships that are important for preventing or reducing people's chances of becoming lonely, our research has shown that meaningful relationships or what we might call meaningful interactions are the most important kinds of social relationships. So for a strong social relationship, it's key is that it needs to be meaningful. And we've actually written a paper in, in, in the Journal for Social Policy and Society which discusses all the components that are required for a meaningful relationship. And in that paper, we put forward a definition of a meaningful relationship. So what we say is that for a meaningful relationship, it needs to have a number of components. So these are that it needs to be with people who are valued by the individual. You need to share a common goal or interest with that person. It needs to be positive. It needs to go beyond a superficial level. So it needs to be a a deeper relationship, not just a fleeting passing by comment from somebody. And it needs to be capable of sustainability in the long term. We've also started to research other types of meaningful relationships that play a role in loneliness as well. So these are not just meaningful relationships with other people, but actually meaningful relationships with places 
and with oneself as well. When we've looked at meaningful relationships, we've found that those three components, a meaningful relationship with others, a meaningful relationships with the place, and a meaningful relationships with oneself are the key things that contribute to whether people feel lonely or not. So when we think about meaningful relationships with places, we're really thinking about the concept of having a sense of belonging. So that could be a sense of belonging to a sporting venue. It could be a football ground or maybe an athletics track. It might be an open space like a lake or a green space, maybe a skate park. Or it could even be a building like a workplace or a shopping centre or a place of worship. Our, Our research has shown that if people have a meaningful relationship with a place and a sense of belonging to that place, that can almost act as a buffer against loneliness. So even if people don't have meaningful relationships with other people at that time, if they have a meaningful relationship with a place, that can really help prevent chronic loneliness. So the third kind of meaningful relationship that is important in terms of people's feelings of loneliness is around having a meaningful relationship with oneself. So as I explained earlier, people who are chronically lonely might actually start to perceive small gestures or interactions with other people as negative. And they might also start to perceive themselves negatively too. And if people though have a strong meaningful relationship with themselves in advance of this then they're less likely to be adversely affected by loneliness or by the lack of social connections that they have with others and in fact people who have a more positive relationship with themselves a more positive meaningful relationship with themselves might even start to enjoy time and space of being alone and often this is what we call solitude and people will talk about solitude in a positive way whereas they talk about loneliness in a negative way. Obviously you've covered a lot of different areas there and it's very complicated and multifaceted. How do you go about studying it? Yeah that's a really good question. There are a number of ways of studying loneliness. Most commonly loneliness is measured quantitatively through statistical measurement scales And a scale is really just a way of numerically measuring an opinion or an emotion. There are two main scales that have been developed and tested and validated over time to assess how lonely people are. The first one is the de Jong-Geveld scale, and that's named after a Dutch professor who designed the scale. And the second one is a UCLA scale. And that one, as its name suggests, was developed in the University of California in Los Angeles. The de Jong-Javel scale includes ways to measure both social and emotional loneliness, but the UCLA scale is the one that we most frequently use in our research. So it was developed a number of years ago, back in the 1970s, and it originally included 20 questions, which could be asked to assess if and how lonely a person is. Now, over time, the scale's been refined and changed, and now there's a shortened version of the scale which includes just three questions. That three item scale is the one that's recommended by the UK government's national loneliness strategy as well. And there are three questions in this UCLA shortened three item scale. So it asks, how often do you feel that you lack companionship? How often do you feel left out? And how often do you feel isolated from others? And the UCLA scale uh, is really popular, so it's used across the world now. There are three options for people to respond to those three questions, so it's a bit like a multiple choice. And they can either respond hardly ever, some of the time, and often. 
And as part of that, then there, there are scores given one for hardly ever, two for some of the time and three for often. And then those scores are added up. And the higher the total score, the more lonely the person is judged to be. Now, alongside that scale, there's also a single question as well that the UK government suggests that we ask, which is how often do you feel lonely with options of hardly ever, never or some of the time or often. And by combining the UCLA three item scale with that single question about how how often do you feel lonely, we can get a quite good, accurate assessment of how lonely people feel and because the UCLA scale is used across the world in many studies and it's also used in large surveys it means that we can compare people's loneliness in different locations or we might be able to compare the effects of different kinds of services and the effects they have on reducing loneliness but that's not to say that any of the scales are without problems and challenges and I think one of the issues is that we're using a quantitative scale to measure subjective feeling so that's always going to be slightly problematic one of the issues with the UCLA scale in particular is it uses quite negative wording so as I said things like how often do you feel you lack companionship how often do you feel left out how often do you feel isolated from others and because of that negative wording it can lead with what we refer to in social science as a response set. So that's where people, the participants, might give the same answer to each of the questions without really thinking about what they've been asked. We've also found that when we've used the UCLA scale in some of our research, that some of the participants can find the questions a bit upsetting because they actually remind them of just how lonely they feel. And we've also found that some of the scales don't work so well with some ethnic minority groups as well, where some of the terms that are used, for example, feeling left out, can have different meanings in different cultures, so it doesn't necessarily accurately reflect that they feel lonely. The other difficulty we've had in using these quantitative measurement scales is that they can vary even when we explore one individual's experience. So we found that when we asked one person, if they feel lonely on the scale, it might give a certain result. But then if we carry out more qualitative interviews and ask in-depth questions, they may not emerge as as lonely as what it suggests on the scale or might even not be lonely at all. So because of those difficulties in using the scales, we try and do a mix of different kinds of research So we try and mix quantitative research alongside more qualitative research. So the scales are really good because they can help us compare across countries and within countries, across regions and uh, across different kinds of initiatives that are designed to reduce loneliness. But at the same time, we need really to have more qualitative discussions and analysis of people's feelings so we can get a deeper understanding of how they're lonely and what that means for them. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. 
Yeah, so if someone listening to this is thinking that sounds interesting and is, is perhaps a field that they'd like to get into themselves, how would they go about that? You know, how did you begin studying it? Oh, well, I've spent much of my academic career researching what we might loosely call marginalised groups. And I've spent a lot of time looking at and evaluating interventions to support different groups. Now, that's changed over the years. So I've carried out research, for example, with teenage parents, with South Asian women who've been excluded from the labour market. I've carried out research with young people who are not in education, employment and training, and with carers who are caring informally for a friend or relative. And what happened is about 10 years ago, I was commissioned to carry out some research on on another group of potentially marginalised people, older people. And I started to carry out more and more research with older people. And although the research wasn't designed to explore loneliness or social isolation, the issues that kept coming up time and time again as I was talking to older people and as we were carrying out research tend to end up discussing loneliness. A good example of this was some research that I carried out for Age UK. So they implemented an intervention called Fit for the Future. Now, Fit for the Future was designed to improve physical activity and well-being of older people. But when we evaluated Fit for the Future, one of the main benefits of the programme was that actually older people were meeting other like-minded people and felt less isolated and lonely. And that seemed to be a key issue. And the more and more that I started researching older people, the more this issue of loneliness emerged. And I really got interested in exploring it and trying to understand it. And especially for me, trying to think about how we can design strategies to reduce loneliness, but also involve the people who are experiencing loneliness in designing those strategies. And the other thing that got me interested in it is earlier on in my career, much before I got involved in research, I had thought about being a town planner at at one point, because I've always been interested in, in thinking about how the design of places can influence people's well-being. As I delved more into loneliness, it actually became apparent that planning and design and architecture can influence how lonely people feel as well. If you have a well-designed area where people can meet and feel safe and can interact with other people, they're less likely to be lonely. So in essence, I suppose, an earlier career plan that I'd had came together with research that I was carrying out with older people and um, the two came together. So the thing that you hear a lot is that loneliness is increasing in Western society, at least anyway. So first off, is that true? And if so, do we know why? I don't think that there's necessarily a clear pattern emerging yet anyway of a long-term trend towards increased loneliness. I think, as I've said, loneliness has always existed. People have always felt lonely and people will always feel lonely. It's a basic human response, as I've said, to having a, a lack of desired social connections. But I think that what has happened over the years has been, especially recently, there's been a number of things that have happened in relation to loneliness that have given it more prominence and more publicity. So I think the first that there were a series of events that happened pre-COVID, so that meant that loneliness entered into the public discussion more. There was the Joe Cox Foundation, then there was a Minister for Loneliness, and coming out of that there was the government's first national loneliness strategy. So it's become more on the 
on the radar publicly. But then there's been the COVID pandemic. And I think following on from that, that's really triggered discussions about loneliness for a few reasons, really. Firstly, obviously the pandemic and the requirement to isolate has triggered loneliness in itself. But also, I think it's triggered some societal changes that were already taking place anyway, but have become more pronounced, which have actually perhaps extenuated people's experience of loneliness. So things like online shopping seems to have have become much more popular, which means people are meeting face-to-face less. Remote working since COVID has become more widespread. There are more people working at home than ever before. And all these things reduce people's opportunities of face-to-face contact. So, you know, that important point I mentioned earlier about having a meaningful relationship with people, it's less likely if it's done remotely. There might well be, and we might find in a few years, there might well be a long-term trend towards increased loneliness longer term. But I think at the moment, it's too early to say because of the pandemic, we don't know whether levels will settle down. But there certainly are, you know, there are large numbers of people lonely. I think there were some statistics in last year in 2022 that said nearly 50% of adults, which is around 25 million people in the UK, were reported to feel lonely occasionally, sometimes, often or always. And I think it was about 4 million people in Great Britain were said to be experiencing chronic loneliness. So that's meaning that they were feeling lonely often or of all ways. So obviously it is an issue and something we need to monitor. Don't think we can conclude too soon that it means it's definitely on the long-term rise. So let's have a look at the effects of loneliness then. So first off, I think on mental health, I think a lot of people would suspect this, but it's linked to all sorts of things, so depression, sleep disorders, and, and even substance abuse. It's important to start by saying that loneliness is not a mental health problem itself, but we do know that loneliness and poor mental health are interlinked. So loneliness can lead to poor mental health, but likewise, poor mental health can lead to loneliness as well. And we know Also, that social connectedness, so the number and types of connections you have with other people, does lead to greater well-being, which can promote better mental health. Now, there have been some studies where they've tried to disentangle the correlations between loneliness and mental health. And some of those have, as you said, shown a positive correlation between loneliness and poor mental health outcomes. So we found that people who are lonely are more likely to experience greater levels of anxiety and depression. They're more likely to have problems with sleep, with alcohol abuse and some other mental health disorders. And research specifically on older people who are lonely has shown that they have a higher propensity to suffer from conditions such as dementia, depression and even suicide. And according to research, it was quite a few years ago now, back in 2012, that research concluded that loneliness leads to a loss of hope and energy as well. So I think the key challenge around loneliness and mental health is really when we're researching it is to be able to calculate and work out which comes first. Is it the loneliness that's leading to the mental health condition or the mental health condition that's leading to loneliness? 
and that's something that's still evolving really and, and research is still taking place to work out which comes before the other. So what's a bit more surprising perhaps is the effects that some studies have found that loneliness has on physical health. Um, so there's one sort of headline grabbing item there that said being lonely was as damaging to physical health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Yeah, again, there's quite a bit of research that does explore the health, the physical health implications of loneliness. And again, it's quite complex. And like mental health conditions, physical health conditions can trigger loneliness, but also loneliness can trigger physical health conditions as well. So again, it's a two-way relationship and getting to the bottom of, of which leads the other is not always straightforward. There has been some research that have found lonely people produce inflammation and an increase in activity in the immune response. And there have been some other studies that have shown specific things like loneliness leading to a range of physical health conditions like heart disease, higher blood pressure, type 2 diabetes. I think there's been some links between loneliness and arthritis and even cancer. Now, the study that you mentioned linking loneliness to smoking does tend to grab the headlines quite a lot. That study was carried out by Professor Julian Holt-Lundstad. She's a professor in psychology and neuroscience in the USA, and she published some research in 2010 along with colleagues, which concluded that the health effect of loneliness is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Now, I'll just tell you a bit about how she got to that conclusion. So her team came to this conclusion by doing something called a meta-analysis. And this is where you bring together a number of different studies. So they did a meta-analysis, which included 148 studies. And they reported data from those studies on 300,000 participants. And they looked over a seven and a half year time period so quite an extensive piece of work and the researchers explored the extent to which social relationships can influence the risk of premature death by making correlations with those studies that they explored and looking at the data and what they concluded from that research was that lonely people were 50% more likely to die prematurely than people who had strong social relationships and then they used a statistical tool which is called the random effects models. And by using that, they concluded that the influence of social relationships on the risk of death is comparable to a number of risk factors for death. And one of those risk factors was smoking 15 cigarettes a day. But they also pointed out that the health risks of loneliness are similar to other risk factors of death, so uh, similar to alcohol consumption, then that is calculated by drinking more than six drinks a day. Physical inactivity and obesity. But I think that because the smoking and, and the link with cancer, etc., and death tends to grab the headlines, those other risk factors where it's linked to physical inactivity, obesity and alcohol consumption tend to get missed. But certainly that research does show that there are strong physical health risks of being lonely. And even very recently, it was mentioned, uh, as you're probably aware of, by the US Surgeon General, who again cited this this link between smoking, the risk of smoking and, and loneliness. 
Yeah, so knowing that loneliness can be harmful to both our physical and mental health, what can we do then by way of summing up? What can we do to lessen its effect? You know, firstly, for those who are feeling, might be feeling lonely themselves. And secondly, for those that aren't, but, you know, would like to help someone who they think is. Well, I think the first thing that, again, we need to think about when when we're thinking about how we help people who are lonely. The first thing is to, again, recognise that loneliness is a normal part of life. And it's something that most of us will face at some points in our lives. And most of that time loneliness will be temporary so it'll it won't be something that lasts forever and we don't need to worry about it too much but sometimes as I've said when those feelings of loneliness don't go and the loneliness becomes chronic that's when we really need to think about it so I think the first thing we need to do is really raise awareness about loneliness so that people who are feeling maybe lonely for longer than might be usual are encouraged to seek help. So I think that we need to raise awareness about loneliness. So people who, if they're feeling lonely, then maybe uh, is longer than what is usual, they're encouraged to seek help. But I think that like most things, prevention is usually better than cure. So at all times in our lives, it's important that we engage in activities that we enjoy, that help us to have meaningful relationships, whether that's meeting other people or visiting places where we have a sense of belonging. And that way, when when something does happen to trigger loneliness, we might be a bit more resilient to prevent it to becoming more long term. But we're not always going to be able to stop people from becoming chronically lonely. So when people are chronically lonely, there is still a lot of support available. And there are a number of programmes and projects around the country in different places that are designed to reduce loneliness and people who feel lonely can go to them to get help from. Now, often this support is provided by voluntary sector organisations. So Age UK, for example, have a befriending scheme which operates across their local branches. And that's where older people can get linked up with another person who can be a friendly face. I think they offer that service online by telephone and face-to-face. The British Red Cross run a programme as well called Community Connectors, and that's for all ages, not just for older people. And that consists of a 12-week person-centred programme of support to help people who are experiencing loneliness and social isolation. And that programme also is designed to connect people with their community as well, so they get a, a greater sense of belonging and connection to the community. I've also been involved myself in evaluating a number of interventions designed to reduce loneliness. So one that was um, really effective was called Time to Shine. That was run by Leeds Older People's Forum in Leeds and it was funded by the National Lottery Community Fund. And they ran a series of interventions for older people in Leeds, which was really based on getting like-minded people together around activities that they were interested in. So dance, music-related activities, eating together. And the key to success of the Time to Shine programme was it it offered activities which were tailored to people's needs and and desires, but it also brought like-minded people together. So once the programme had ceased, the people who had connected to it continued to form meaningful relationships with each other and met beyond the programme. Now, there are also a number of um, technology-based interventions that are emerging that people can access 
to help reduce loneliness. So uh, there's one, again in Leeds actually by coincidence, called Project Intimacy. And it's a WhatsApp immersive experience. And it's designed to make social connections, for people to make social connections with each other. And the way this runs is two people are randomly connected together and over a 14-day period, through using WhatsApp, it guides them through daily activities and tasks and sort of directs them to do certain things over these 14 days so they can connect with, with each other. So they can go on a sort of a, a guided virtual walk in a park, for example, or they might have a, a guided tour around each other's homes. And I, th- I think the other thing to note is alongside these specific programmes and projects that are designed to reduce loneliness, there are simple things that individuals can do as well for themselves if they feel lonely or they might direct other people to do if, if they are aware of someone who feels lonely. So a simple and most obvious one is keeping busy, immersing yourself in work or gardening or domestic chores. Now, obviously, that's only a short term temporary solution and it's not something that is going to help you in the longer term. But I think if you do find yourself being lonely, keeping busy is a good way to distract yourself from that. But then there are other things that you can do beyond that as well. So you might want to think about the places where you do have a sense of belonging to. I mentioned earlier about it might be a football ground, place of worship, a favourite beach you've got. But if you can start to visit some places where you feel a sense of belonging, then that can help prevent you feeling lonely or even build up your resilience to, to being lonely. Another option is to participate in some voluntary work so that's a great way to get to know people whilst keeping busy and some of our research has shown that people who volunteer and help out others it gives them a a, a sense of purpose and that in itself makes them feel less lonely and isolated. A last point to to mention is that you might think for example about getting a, a pet so there's also some research on the role that pets can play in in reducing loneliness so it could be a dog a cat we've even seen some research around hen keeping and how hen keeping can reduce loneliness so there's a organization called equal arts based up in the northeast and they uh, use hen keeping in care homes to help people care home residents feel less lonely the activities around looking after the hens help the care homes residents come together to talk to each other and also school children and other people are encouraged to come into the care homes to look at the hens and that helps them interact with the residents so i think there are a whole range of ways either formal ways through programs and um, projects or other kinds of initiatives that people can engage with themselves to to reduce the feelings of loneliness thank you for listening to this episode of instant genius brought to you from the team behind bbc science focus that was professor andrea wickfield director of the center for loneliness studies at sheffield hallam university the current issue of bbc science focus magazine is out now Pick up a copy wherever you buy your favourite magazines or download us on your preferred app store. You can also find us online at sciencefocus.com. 